This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome to the Knowledge at Wharton podcast series, From Backstreet to Wall Street, where entrepreneurs from around the world use innovative business models to solve some of the world's most pressing business problems. Leaders in the impact investing movement who are providing the capital to fuel the growth drive these conversations. Your hosts are Mukul Pandya, Executive Director and Editor-in-Chief of Knowledge at Wharton, and Doreen Shanaz, Founder and CEO of Impact Investment Exchange, one of the pioneers in promoting impact investing in Asia. Our oceans ensure food security to 3 billion people worldwide who rely on fish as their primary source of protein. And as we, most of us love sushi, this is obviously, obviously a, um, an important piece of information for us. But despite our love for fish, the reality is overfishing is probably one of the most urgent global issues that we have and uh, the least amount of awareness around it around the world. There are destructive uh, fishing methods, there are rampant illegal fishing, and there's also inadequate nautical regulation that translates into severe commercial consequences, which has tremendous loss of economic value as well as, of course, social and environmental values. There's an urgent need to unlock new sources of capital for this industry, so there can be uh, effective sustainability around the whole sector. The impact investment space, of which IX is a pioneer, is well positioned to, to mobilize capital from the private sector to finance the transition from overfishing to sustainable fishing. So in today's episode, we have with us Ms. Amy Gonzalez, who is the Executive Director of PENSI, which stands for Partnerships in Environmental Management, for the Seas of East Asia. It's an intergovernmental organization that works to foster and sustain healthy and resilient coasts and oceans, communities and economies across the seas of the East Asia, through focusing on the integration and coordination of various coastal and marine management efforts. Amy, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Great. So, Amy, before I jump in with your question, I want to sort of give our listeners a little bit more um, of a reality of what's happening in the fishing sector. So just a few statistics I want to throw in there. There are 3 billion people in this world um, who rely both on the wild-caught and the farmed seafood as their primary source of protein. So that's, you know, more than half the, the population of the world right now. Also, the marine productivity, 90% of the global fisheries are being fished at above their maximum sustainable yield level. That means the fish are soon going to all go away. And livelihood, on, the, on that front, it's very interesting that Asia accounts for 84% of all people employed in the fisheries and aquaculture sector worldwide. So these are quite astounding numbers. Now, I mean, what... what do you, you know, what's your reaction to this? I mean, you know, in terms of Pensy, focusing on the work that you're doing, can you give us some kind of background on how you're doing this and turning this equation around? Well, um, we are working, and Pensy is working to foster and sustain healthy coasts and oceans 
commercially and economically across Southeast Asia through integrated management solutions and partnerships. We are working at all levels. So at the regional level, we have some framework for sustainable development for the seas of East Asia. And then at the national level, we're driving policy development. And at the local level is where implementation happens. Now, when I talk about national policy, you, you emphasize on, on fisheries and development of fisheries. Um, what we're working on, as like I said, is integrated management. So we're look, looking not only at the sustainable production, but before that, really looking at how we could maintain, restore, and sustain ecosystem habitats. And to throw more statistics at you, um, you know, the world's ocean value is generated to be at least U.S. $2.5 trillion, making it equivalent to the seventh largest economy on the planet. So there are lots of opportunities. So, Amy, let there. me just let me... Let me just um, let me just sort of uh, put this in perspective, perhaps a little bit for our listeners. So, what you're saying is, it's just not about the the production of the fish or no. trying to find a solution it's around about the, the fish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a policy that's an integrated about... sort of solution. Is that correct? Yes. 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 So we're looking so not just at fish catch and on, on increasing volumes of fish catch. But looking at how you actually um, look at marine planning, you know, how you plan the coast, you know, so that it right. serves not right. just the fishermen, but also ecotourism, but you actually look also at ecosystems management and restoration. There's the shipping and maritime industry as well. So it's broader than right. just fishery. So it's, it's not just putting a cap on the production, um, you know, sort of the fishing numbers. Um, it's also sort of looking at how the policy changes and also how to sort of protect the environment. Now, yeah. interestingly, if you think about the caps, um, and this is something that often comes up, you know, in the work that we are doing as well from IAX, you know, that often sort of falls on the fishermen and the fisherwomen who, who are, you know, poor to start with. And yet, we do see a lot of these big trawlers coming in from the bigger countries, and they're sucking up all the fish. Now, what is happening about that? I mean, there seems to be an incredible amount of tension in Asia um, regarding this. As a matter of fact, um, our neighboring country in Indonesia, um, they just blow up the these ships now, you know, these, these trawlers, if they come and start fishing in their water. I mean, it almost sounds like, you know, the next war was going to happen on fish. How, what is happening? What is Pensy doing about this and, um, in terms of this inequality and in terms of this intention that's happening? Mm-hmm. Well, Pensy does not deal directly on fisheries uh, management per se. What, as, as I said, we have an integrated solution where we look at the health of coasts and oceans, you know, and also mm-hmm. looking at the generating sustainable, equitable economic benefits and inclusive growth. So the, 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 the regulatory part is really the government's role. What we're providing are like, is like capacity building and technical services on how you look at the oceans and coasts in a holistic manner. So, but um, to answer your question on um, the iniquity between uh, distant water fishing fleets and coastal fisheries, the tension is there, of course, the big versus the small. 
and but um, there have been solutions to try to make them work together. I mean, in the in the Pacific, for example, there's a Philippine now. Uh, there's a Pacific Nauru agreement where you get a small-scale fisheries having equal voice with the big uh, trawlers and tuna purseiners as well. So there are some solutions to these types of uh, big versus small fraud. Uh, Issues. Uh, one main thing that that could that uh, would help respond to this is really giving, empowering the small scale fisheries and giving them a voice at the table. Because more often than that, they uh, their concerns are lumped with the concerns of the large uh, fishing fleets, uh, large fishing industry. That uh, their individual needs, you know, of access to capital. How do you give them a voice? To, sorry. How do you give them a voice? How do you give the fisher men and women a voice in this process? Help the work them, that you're help doing? them. Um, yeah, help them manage their resources. So you know, or let them organize themselves. Or we we have this co-management schemes. Uh, there's like uh, protected areas where they are uh, made into stewards of their own uh, of, of of the patch of, of fishing uh, coast uh, coastal communities uh, coastal uh, land that they that they're working on, and yeah. as well as um, as well as helping them organize themselves. You know, there are women small-scale fishery, uh, fisher folks industry, there's organizations like the um, International uh, Collective on Sea Workers, um, who have mm -hmm. established uh, workshops like Too Big to Ignore, because they are big in numbers, with 90% of, of fishers um, in, in Asia, for example, they say are small-scale fishers, and half of them are women. So organizing them, um, making them aware of, of what their rights are, uh, as well as uh, making them stewards of, of, uh, of, their, of the fisheries resources and helping them understand that they are as much as, they are as much responsible for um, restoring and maintaining uh, sustainable fisheries so that they could continue on with their livelihoods, you know, to generate uh, food security, then um, there are some examples where this has worked quite well uh, in Asia, in the Pacific, in West Africa, etc. Of course, the problem right. to me... So that's, that's interesting. So basically, um, so basically, you know, you, you're talking about empowering um, and organizing um, the mm -hmm. fishermen mm -hmm. communities. Um, yeah, in terms of you know, giving them the voice. Yeah. Right. Now, mm -hmm. let me just shift the conversation a little bit. I mean, obviously, uh, to give the fishermen a voice and get them to, um, you know, have have the power to uh, to actually have some control over their lives. Now, all of this mm -hmm. also, you know, that means that Pemsey would also ex experience some challenges, right? I mean, yeah. um, there are also, of course, a lot of political you know, implication of this. So what kind of challenges has Pemsey encountered, you know, sort of in terms of doing uh, this kind of work that you're doing? So, for example, in the work on um, impact investments and, you know, uh, promoting innovative financing mechanisms, which is the topic, some of the barriers that actually we experience are the issues of tenure rights and incentives for fishing industry uh, and more so the small-scale fishers to pursue sustainable use of fisheries resources. More often than not, the tenure rights are not so clear. 
and then also, you know, how do you determine science-based sustainable harvest levels that can enable investment frameworks to, to, to really implement? I mean, these are some of the preconditions for investors to, to come and uh, invest in, in some of these fisheries projects. So, I mean, a lot of these uh, small-scale fisheries don't have the data or access to the data. So there are no, there's no documentation. So how do you actually establish science-based harvest level? So there's some, there's some ways to go around this um, uh, by based on, uh, for example, oral uh, experience, you know, oral tradition, uh, local knowledge of people about how much fish they've been getting, the types of fish that are out there in the ocean to be able to help determine right. this harvest level. There's also, right. of right. course, Monitoring and enforcement issues, you know, so that you right. won't have any And I think also now there are, there are measurements there um, in place in the impact investing space. I mean, we are very much, um, you know, uh, part of this in terms of uh, measuring the impacts, uh, not only in terms of just the outputs, but also from the outcomes. So in terms of the change in lives uh, for the fishermen and how that's really impacting the oceans as well in a positive way. So those are all sort of, uh, you know, good, I would say, advancement in this space. Now, interestingly, um, you know, we hear a lot about sort of the blue economy. So what is, you know, if you don't mind, um, you know, telling our listeners a little bit more, what does this blue economy mean and, uh, and why is the private sector critical sort of in building this blue economy? So the blue economy really for us is the alternative to the status quo and it builds on a set of environmentally and social sustainable commercial activities, you know, product services investments that are dependent on and impacting on coastal and marine resources, you know, activities that erode national capital through degradation of ecosystem services are inherently not sustainable and therefore not considered blue. I mean, there is no one-size-fits-all definition of blue economy, but there are some elements which are present in coastal and marine economic activities that are considered blue economies. Some of these elements are like, you know, they would uh, protect, restore, and sustain healthy coastal and marine ecosystem services. That's number one. Number two, they would generate sustainable economic benefit and, and foster inclusive growth. They would call for integrative approaches between uh, multiple industries and government. And the last is that it's innovative, and but it's informed by best available science. So these are sort of like what we would call the principles right. of how blue economy could, uh, under a blue economy framework, could uh, work. Now, on your second right. question no. on... Um, I have an answer second question on private sector yes, capital. Yes, go ahead. Uh-huh. Yeah, there is significant need for private sector capital because, for example, UNDP has identified that there's an investment gap of 2.5 trillion U.S. dollars to achieve the targets under sustainable development goals. You know, and one mm-hmm. of one mm-hmm. of those. But that's the, for everything. That's just not for fish, though, right? That's, yeah, that's yeah, a three trillion dollar goal too for the all. Yeah, for all the sustainable development goals, yeah, just yeah, not but, for fish. Well, right. if you don't have money for some of the big tickets like climate, how much more for fisheries? Mm-hmm. So that's the emphasis right. that I'd right. like to. So, so there are don't uh, you know 
inter multilateral organizations and government financing they're crucial, but then it's clear that it will not be enough by itself, and this is acknowledged. And so if we're going to be successful, it's going to, it's going to require participation of private capital. And so right. That, so, do you have uh, any example? Um, do you have any example, um, Angie, in terms of um, you know sort of innovative financing that you have seen that um, sort of looks like that can be scaled or it can be replicated? Yeah, there are some. Uh, there are lots of mom and pop examples. For example, where provision okay. of microfinance. Can you share with us? So yeah, I, like I said, there are there's the provision of microfinancing to help fishers supplement their livelihoods and income. There are associations, you know, receiving uh, financial support for muscle culture areas in the Philippines. But these are very small. And so if you want to develop this at the higher scale, then you need uh, blended financing, innovative financing, particularly private and public partnership. Another example is, um, well, it's, it's huge. Um, U.S. dollar, six million seed capital for rare conservation smelloy fund. 20 million U.S. fund uh, focused on aquaculture and fisheries investments in the Philippines and Indonesia. But given, you know, mm -hmm. these archipelagic countries, that's probably not a lot, you know, uh, for, for right. these types of endeavors and for these huge countries. That's a good point. Um, and I think um, what we saw, Amy, when we did the report, we did actually a uh, report that we worked on with you, uh, with PEMSI from mm -hmm. IIX, and we yeah. did find, I mean, it was very interesting that we did recommend that we need to have a lot more initiative and conservation using sort of creating mm -hmm. financing options. So I don't right. think, you know, funds are a good start, but we need to have sort of interesting, you know, fixed income securities. You know, we need to have, um, you know, larger scale um, innovative financial tools um, where the financial institutions and the in institutional investors can come in. But having said that, from what we also saw was there's a disconnect, you know, in terms of um, what investors are looking for and what they will come in for versus in terms of, you know, what the work that's being done now, right? So if there, I mean, just first and foremost is a big say, emphasis um, from the investor side in terms of looking at risk. So if you're looking at a financial mechanism that we can have, are there ways that that risk can be, be mitigated from what MC is working on, um, you know, in terms of well, any, is, any type of financial yeah. instrument? Yeah, that's a... We are, this is, this is the challenge that PEMSI is actually tackling at the moment. You know, we're working on developing this ocean investment facility for the region to support okay. development okay. of, you know, highly, high quality investable deals through project sourcing, project development, alignment of private capital with government and donor funding initiatives, as well as mm -hmm. helping, you know, potential uh, nascent initiatives on the ground and uh, making them investable projects. And this is, this is the, the challenge because you, you don't right. have much uh, high-quality investable yields at the moment because it, 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 it doesn't, you know, it's not like after six months of talking to people on the ground, you would already have an investable project. It will take exactly. time because some exactly. of this actually 
are facing fisheries management issues, like the tenure rights that I've mentioned, you know, mm. determining sustainable harvest levels, monitoring and enforcement to ensure that, you know, illegal fishing won't come in. And then you also have to identify investable entities to act as counterparty to the investment. So risk is one, but there are all these other preconditions that we need to also look into. So this isn't like a one-shot deal. I mean, it will require investments on fisheries management as well. Yeah? Right, right. Yes. So I, just for our listeners, um, you're listening to From Backstreet to Wall Street, a series that explores how impact investing is linking the remotest parts of the world to the global financial markets. And today's episode is Where Have All the Fish Gone? And we have mm-hmm. with us our guest, Amy Gonzalez from PEMSI, and I'm doing Chinats from Impact Investment Exchange. Now, um, Amy, one of the sort of our burning question always, you know, in this show is what gives you the hope that we can connect the back street to Wall Street and achieve, I guess in this case, very close to your heart, which is the Sustainable Development Goal 14, which is life below water. Um, what gives you hope that we can yeah. actually achieve that? Well, um, well, what we're doing at the moment is that we're working at the local level, so it's pretty much grounded on what what is feasible, you know, uh, at the field level, and what would work in terms of generating food and livelihood security. It's um, not a one-shot deal, uh, but um, what we're hoping to bring to to the program is to link, you know, to give an idea of some of the challenges and opportunities on the ground with high financing models or, you know, how, how we could scale up growth, for example, and bringing it to the audience in Wharton and, and, uh, uh, and your show so that where enough innovation, you know, some of this creative thinking also happens so that then we can also then link from global back to local. Just generating ideas also on what could, how we could be more creative in um, responding to the challenges at the local level. Right, and and galvanize everyone. And I think, uh, yes, you you put it very very nicely. And I think uh, you know, it will happen, and it is slowly happening. And you're doing very very important important work. So Amy, thank you so very much. I and mean, this was really oh, really interesting. You. you know, this is a this is a very important issue for all of us. Um, and for the planet um, as a whole, and you're doing fantastic work, and uh, and you are doing you know wonderful things that's connecting the back street to Wall Street for the fishery sector. So thank you very much for joining the show. Thank you. Bye. We've just heard from Amy Gonzalez from Pemsia in East Asia, and now let's hear another perspective from Dale Galvin, managing director of Rare and managing partner of Milloy Fund in the U.S. RARE is an international conservation organization with a mission to help communities adopt sustainable behaviors towards their natural environment and resources. It has started the Malloy Fund, an impact investment fund focused on creating value for coastal communities and ecosystems by investing in fisheries and aquaculture-related enterprises in Indonesia and the Philippines. As you have heard, our oceans ensure food security to 3 billion people worldwide who rely on fish as their primary source of protein. 
Despite this, overfishing is probably one of the most urgent global issues that receives the least awareness. Destructive fishing methods, rampant illegal fishing, and inadequate nautical regulation translate to severe commercial consequences with tremendous loss of economic value. There is an urgent need to unlock new sources of capital for this industry. The impact investing space, of which IIX is a pioneer in Asia, is well positioned to mobilize capital from the private sector to, to finance the transition from overfishing to sustainable fishing. Dale, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, great, thanks for having me. And, and Doreen, uh, would you like to uh, take the lead in uh, sure, sure, asking thanks. the questions? Sure. Um, and, um, and Dale, a very warm welcome to you. And uh, we had a wonderful chat right now with Amy. And uh, it'll be just fantastic to now get a different perspective. I won't say different, but at least from a uh, different part of the world. Uh, in what's going on with this whole industry. So before we jump in, we usually like to sort of have our guests say a little bit about themselves. So it'll be fantastic for us to find out, you know, what got you on this journey to connect the back street to Wall Street um, and getting into this whole sustainable fishery space. Sure. Uh, well, again, thanks for, thanks for having me. I think talking about how we finance the SDGs is is a really critical thing to do, and, and uh, you know, the more we can do to shine a light on that, the better. So, so for me personally, I did kind of come full circle in my career. I started out, I like to say, sort of the first half of my career, although that's getting to be more of a, of a smaller portion as time goes on, uh, in the private sector, uh, in various consulting and, and banking roles, and change management, uh, CFO and, and CEO uh, roles for different sizes and shapes of companies. Um, but I really felt at, that my experience at the time was was mostly about creating, finding value creation opportunities for companies and organizations and, and how they could uh, transition to to create value and stop more value-destroying activities. And, and sometime after business school, I took a bit of a break, traveled around the developing world in the proverbial backpacking for about a year and a half, uh, and decided that I was going to kind of bring those skills to the back street, as you put it. Uh, and then I found Rare, uh, which was a really good fit for me because Rare has this really unique focus on uh, finding and scaling solutions that are focused on benefiting both people and nature. So it was a way for me to connect my uh, sort of former business experience with um, the developing world. Right. Now, tell us, I mean, from uh, from what I understand with Rare, I mean, of course, Rare is, a, is um, an NGO which has focused on uh, sustainable fishing, but everything kind of around it, right? It's sort of creating awareness and kind of fish management and uh, restoring, you know, watersheds. Tell us a little bit about that and, and just maybe picking a couple of the um, of the issues that Rare focuses on more than the others. Sure. So Rare, rare specialty, we, we call it, behavior, you know, behavior change or, or, or promoting sustainable behaviors, helping local communities adopt sustainable behaviors that help them benefit from the protection of nature because, of course, they depend in the developing world on nature for their livelihoods largely. And so, you know, Rare for 40 years has been the organization that really works at the grassroots level, helping communities identify and adopt what we call bright spots or, you know, proven solutions that help them help them do this, help them live sustainably with nature. And so that's been – we have a methodology for that called the Pride Campaign, which helps uh, – 
communities uh, figure out what they feel pride in in their in their uh, backyard, basically. So we, we look at that as an emotional hook for promoting behavior change. Uh, and, you know, we've done that over 400 times in over 50 countries around the world over the decades. But as we grew, we, we figured out that really, in order to scale these solutions, we needed to focus on building capacity with the only kind of local partner really that is everywhere, and that's, that's governments. And so we started working more and more with communities and governments to adopt ways of managing their natural resources, and coastal fishing became a really critical area for us to focus on because it is the intersection of food and, as you, as you were saying in the introduction, food and, uh, and climate and uh, biodiversity and natural resources, right. and it has really been a sort of under-managed, under-appreciated part of the, of the uh, environment for a long time. So in terms of this, um, you know, this um, kind of focus on, on changing the, the behavior, the fishing behavior, I mean, what made you, um, for your fund, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of leading up to the questions to the, to the Malloy Fund, but what made you decide to do this in Asia, you know, rather than uh, other places? I know you do some work in Latin America and also in Africa. Right. So RARE's focus uh, as a conservation organization is on the most important, high-valued nature, you know, biodiversity in the world, and the intersection of that, as I said, with, with the poorest people in the world. And when it comes to oceans, that area is the Coral Triangle, right? That is the most mm-hmm. biodiverse area in the world. Uh, and, you know, between Indonesia and the Philippines, you have 25,000 mm-hmm. islands and 400 million people. And so it's, and these are coastal, you know, largely coastal communities. So it's, it's really the most important place to work if you care about, mm-hmm. about coral reefs and mangroves and, and coastal fishing. Right. No, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, so now, interestingly, um, you know, there is, of course, EDF, there is Conservation International, there is WWF, and I know you're part of WWF at some point from there. Yeah. Um, what is, I mean, is there a lot of overlap? Are you all kind of, you know, collaborating? Or are you sort of uh, going after the same things? And if all these organizations are working, do you see the needle really moving or not? Sure. Well, we, we all have our roles. I think we all certainly partner quite a lot. We all interact quite a lot. Um, you know, in our case, we, for many years, trained those organizations in our community engagement methods. But uh, I think, you know, for one thing, you know, Rare has a really unique structure in the way that we replicate one solution globally as opposed to being, you know, sort of many of these much larger organizations are more site-based and they're more diver, uh, more decentralized and Rare kind of finds these solutions. For instance, how do we help coastal fisheries recover? How do we create, you know, rights-based management approach uh, and then replicate that uh, on a global, on a national and then a global scale? So we all have our, our niches and our, and our you know, uh, advantages and, and our um, skill sets, but we do partner quite a bit. I, I think where we can move the needle together the most is in uh, for instance, policy, right? So for a long time, Indonesia wasn't really focused heavily on fisheries management. And then now, you know, with, with the help of, of a really, uh, you know, sort of strong-willed government, as well as, you know, a lot of uh, advocacy from NGOs, then that needle is beginning to move. Right, right. Now let's, let's move on to, um, to the fund. So, it's, uh, so yep. what, what made you think of doing this fund? Um, because RARE is an NGO and, um, you know, you're doing what you're doing and doing it well. I mean, why getting into this finance space? Yeah, right. So, um, so I kind of connect to that first part of, of my story. So you know, before I started the fund, I was the chief operating officer at Rare, and as 
leading the growth of this program that we call Fish Forever. This is the global uh, coastal fisheries reform or recovery program. I started to, we started to think about how do we get to scale, right? So how do you get to a tipping point in the countries in which we're working where these, these new ways of behaving become new social norms like buckling your seatbelt or, you know, stopping smoking? These are things that take time and have to become part of, of how we think about managing our natural resources. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then we started doing the math. Well, how much is that going to cost, right? So, you know, we have generous donors, but the answer to the question of how much is it going to cost to scale these solutions is, is in the billions of dollars, if not more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, when you look at the pools of funding that are available to you to, to do that, you, you only have two, which is the public and private sectors. Mm-hmm. And so we started doing these models to say, okay, well, if we were to recover these fisheries, what would that create in terms of income for local people, in terms of jobs, in terms of poverty alleviation, in terms of climate resilience? And we realized that it could be a positive IRR scenario. So, uh, so we started looking on the private side about you know, asking a couple of questions. Uh, one was, you know, will companies and businesses and, and organizations in, the, in that space, in that supply chain, respond to opportunities to source local sustainable seafood? Will they see the business necessity of that? And then will fishers, on the other hand, respond to the opportunities to change behaviors in response to economic and social incentives? And so when we figured out that the answers to both those questions were yes, then we knew that we should launch a fund to begin to demonstrate that effect and, and help that transition happen for, so there for the industry. Before, before, yeah, sure. and that, that's, you know, that makes complete sense. Um, but I'm just curious, and again, you know, for because we talk to many people, right? And it's always, and for us at IX, sort of, we're sitting right in the middle, right? We're working with all this, all the financing, all that. But we are seeing a lot of NGOs who are coming into the space, which, um, you know, is it's interesting to watch this because um, if you look at the NGO budgets, I mean, it's actually for a lot of them, uh, and I'm curious to hear what Rare's budget is, yearly budget. Um, you are used to this sort of the advocacy and things that are much needed, and it's very you know there's no way you can do that from a private sector funding. So um, so I think for you to kind of get into this whole on the investment side of it, um, yep. so I'm just curious to sort of see how the two will now work together. Yep. Um, and then also you know how much of a of a difference will it make? So the first question, I mean, how how much is Rare's budget usually yearly budget? So our budget, our our budget for next year is about thirty million U.S. Thirty million, okay. So you you're you're going, you know, your budget is thirty million, you know, pretty much give or take every year, Um, and this is a twenty million dollar fund, right? So I think, um, how do you think this is going to actually um, bring about uh, a bigger change than what you're doing, or if it's an easier way of doing it? Yeah. So 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 you know, firstly. Think about it as two separate organizations, right? You have a fund that's a business that's run by its own team. And then you have a, the NGO that's a that's an NGO that's a 501c3, you know, that's run by its own, mm-hmm. own yep, team. That's yep. a 30 million dollar organization. So what what we really what's unique about this idea and why I think we we're able to attract so many investors to it in, in a short amount of time is that you can't really invest into a sector like oceans or, or fisheries and expect to make a real difference outside of the company you're investing in. <clears throat> unless you're connecting that to the management of the natural resource, right? Mm-hmm. So you have this fishery. It's a common pool resource. So 
you know, if, if I'm a business and I want to fish only source a certain kind of fish that doesn't necessarily change the shape of the fishery unless other businesses are doing the same thing, unless communities agree to those behaviors, unless government is managing those stocks, that's all not happening at any kind of scale in the developing world. Mm-hmm. So by connecting the NGO work, not just of Rare, but our partners and governments that we're trying to mm-hmm. scale with investment in a business that is now interacting in those supply chains, you have this opportunity to demonstrate how those two, those two pools of funding and those two kinds of organizations can work together and make a real change. So, you know, $20 million isn't a huge fund, but it's a start. And the idea is to demonstrate that and at the same time catalyze, you would call blended finance, you know, using that to catalyze the, um, the, you know, sort of, it's sort of uh, iterative. You know, we catalyze the government to do its part and NGOs to do their part, and at the same time, more capital to come into the, the private, from the private sector and from the investment sector to start to, um, to, to change these businesses to behave in, in more sustainable ways. And then, so, so then hopefully over time, you know, it's, it's not 20 million, but it's hundreds of millions of dollars, and it's in more countries uh, that will ultimately lead to, to the change we need for, for the SDGs. So, so, so Dale, I, ha- I have a quick question. You've referred a, a few times to changing behaviors. Uh, what are some of the behaviors that you think most need to be changed, and and how? So, uh, in the fishing sector, it has to do with uh, this idea of the tragedy of the commons. So, you have this common pool resource again. So, if I'm a fisher and I decide, well, I want to. Uh, I want to change uh, my behavior. I want to catch only the right size fish with the right gear in the right places. Um, that doesn't necessarily change my destiny if everybody else in my community doesn't do that, right? If everybody comes in and catches the same thing, any, catches whatever they want as fast as they can, then it doesn't, I don't benefit at all. It's, it's, a, it's sort of like that prisoner's dilemma. And then if a trawler comes by from another country or from my own country and just sweeps it all up, you know, in an hour, then I've also lost. So the behaviors have to be these these social norms in the way that we decide that we're going to behave in a certain way, just like with a farm. So you think about having it on land where you have a farm, you don't necessarily worry that your neighbor's going to come and take your crops. Well, in the oceans, it doesn't work like that. So we have to ha- help local communities figure out ways of protecting their fisheries and managing them for the first time, really, in many of these places. So, so those behaviors might be, you know, agreeing to where they fish, agreeing to how they fish, agreeing to how they manage and, and count fish and how much they can fish every year and who can fish and who can't and these kinds of things. Those are the behaviors that we're talking about. So, Dale, just pushing on that, isn't it also the fact that um, with the fishermen, I mean, uh, they also have to, of course, you know, feed their family. They have to make a living. So... Uh, isn't it also the fact that there's also a big need to create alternative livelihood for them, right? So if we are saying that you can kind of just fish here and you should be just fishing here, else there won't be any fish even for yourself, you know, if you just yes. um, overfish or just uh, go beyond this. Um, so isn't it, I mean, it does um, rare or even Malloy fund, you know, through the investments you're looking at, are you looking at alternative livelihoods or or? any other ways that will indirectly help in the sustainable fishing? Right. So, right, you're, you're definitely on to, on to the right idea. So it, when you're having overfishing, those stocks can recover, but you have to, you know, often in the short term you're going to have this dip. We call it a J-curve. And so the question is how do you help these communities get through that transition? Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, they have to eat. They have to continue to fish. And this is really their decision as to how they mm-hmm. choose to go through this transition. So we have a couple of ways of doing that. The Malloy Fund, and that's really, you know, what the Malloy Fund's all about. So on the one hand, you know, by creating more value per catch, 
higher premiums, lower costs, reducing waste, improving the cold chain, and so on through interactions with business, we can help those fishers receive more money you know, per hour or per, per kilo of fish. So that helps them make that transition. The other thing, as you mentioned, is alternative livelihoods. I'm not a huge fan, or at least the fund isn't designed to create jobs in you know, other sectors outside of, out of the oceans, whether it's telemarketing or you know, farming or something. But we do believe that those fishers who are already doing a lot in the sector, a lot of them work in processing, a lot of them work in aquaculture, part-time, full-time. So we can help those kinds of, those kinds of industries uh, grow and take those fishers off the water uh, give them, you know, basically give them something else to do, but something that it's not so far from what they're already doing and, and feel comfortable with and know how to do so that the stocks mm-hmm. can and the, and the oceans can recover. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess with the fund, I mean, it's a $20 million fund. And what are, what are the terms, I mean, that the investors are getting? Huh. Uh, well, I mean, I think it's designed pretty much as a, as a standard uh, closed-end fund. It's Sort of a 220 model, not not exactly, but more or less, and it's got a, mm-hmm. I think it, it got the guarantee from USAID, as I think your some of your initiatives do, um, and so um, you know that's basically the, it's you know our investment size uh, average is going to be around one to two million dollars, so we're going to do about ten to ten to fifteen investments. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how are you going to find these deals from the U.S.? Well, so okay, so you know we have. There's, none of the team is in the U.S. So you, Rare is based in the U.S., but the Malloy Fund is mm-hmm. based in in uh, in Asia, and we have a team in mm-hmm. in Indonesia and in the Philippines. But of course, Rare itself also has huge teams in these all over the world. So you know, we have about 50 staff with Fish Forever in Indonesia and the Philippines, working in many dozens of municipalities and, and districts and provinces. And so, you know, a lot of our relationships come from a long history of interacting with governments and communities and business in these countries. Um, and so that helps us with understanding how, how to connect these supply chains. It helps us with finding pipeline. Uh, it helps us with, with government relations and, and so on. So, so you know, we, have, we, we don't run the fund out of, out of Washington, D.C. We, we run it in, okay. in the region where, where the stuff is happening. Okay, okay. So and what are some of the things, the pipeline, what are some of the exciting things that you're seeing? Well, you know, what's really great about this sector is that, you know, when you're talking about issues like food and you're talking about a natural resource, that businesses even start to understand that it goes beyond uh, any kind of CSR idea. This is not about corporate social responsibility. It's not about doing, you know, philanthropy. It's about long-term business viability. If you don't have, you know, if you're a fishing, if you're a fish buyer, if you're a processor, you know, you don't have a steady supply of, of fish, you have, you have a business problem. And so you, you have this issue of a dwindling natural resource combined with a really increasing pressure regu- from a regulatory point of view in many governments that are, are sort of um, wising up to this, uh, this issue. And then you have demand coming from the consumer side and, and downstream supply chain and brands and retail and so on. So you have all these pressures on businesses to start to think about how to change. And so you have, on the one hand, you know, that sort of handful of really sustainable-minded, mission-aligned companies, you might even call them social enterprises, those are very small in number. And then the vast majority of the, of the market is our pipeline, which is the traditional fishing sector that is now beginning to understand that if they don't start to transition, they're going to be out of luck. And so many times they need capital to help them make that transition, build new facilities, uh, working capital to begin to explore new markets, uh, exp- you know, work with new communities, and 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 um, contribute to uh, fishery management. And so that is um, 
that's our pipeline. So how are you actually measuring the impact that they're creating? Because aren't they sort of the traditional, it sounds like you're more focusing on the M's, right, of SMEs. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it's a medium-sized enterprises that you're focusing on. So how are you actually measuring the impact that they're creating? So, you know, there's, uh, again, so there's two pieces of that. There's the impact of, for the business, which is its, uh, you know, it's how it's doing in, in ESG criteria and in terms of its, its reach. Um, but then there's the impact on the water and with local communities. And so we, again, have the advantage of this partnership with Rare and essentially the largest coastal fishing recovery program in the world that has all sorts of data on how communities are doing, their income, their uh, you know their income stability, their climate resilience, and then of course in the water, fish biomass, reef health, these kinds of things. So we're collecting all that data with Rare, and so to the extent we can connect that with where we're working in Fish Forever, I'm sorry, in the Malloy Fund, then we have you know we have a, a, a lot of ways. But of, are you doing uh, that? I mean, that. so with each investment, do you look at the impact the, the investments having? The reason I'm sort of yep. um, you know, curious about this is because, you know, we operate in these markets, right? And um, there is a definite disconnect um, in terms of really seeing how the business is operating for most of the, you know, the SMEs and, of course, for the large organizations even more so, and really the impact that's being created, both the positive and the, and the negative, you know, the externalities. So, I, I mean, is there an effort from Malloy Fund to actually say, okay, this is the investment we're making, and it's $1 million, and what's the definite impact of this $1 million, you know, on the conservation, on the sustainable fishing, on the livelihood that's been created, and the impact of the fa- on the families and the environment? Yep. Is that something yeah, absolutely. that's... Okay. Yeah, and I, and I agree with you. I mean, I think it's it's weak in the impact investing sector in general. There's this connection. You know, you really – and many funds don't have really the opportunity to go beyond what's happening in the business itself. That's obviously the easiest thing to look at. But for us, we definitely have the we, – well, first of all, we have this this sort of proprietary guidelines for fisheries investing that we, we have on our website um, mm-hmm. uh, that, that helps us uh, – helps you understand what we're trying to achieve with the fund, and then we will connect that to – you know, as much as possible, where Rare is working or, or can work in the future, but also other partners to help us on the data collection side. But the most important thing is that there's some kind of fishery management going on where these companies are extracting fish, because otherwise you really don't know whether whether you know you're doing uh, harm or good, and and um, and that's obviously the point of the fund. So that's that's a key part of what we're going to be focused on. Uh, one one question I have is, uh, you know, uh, remi- this conversation reminds me of a con- uh, discussion I had with a social entrepreneur from India uh, some time ago. He's from one of the poorest states in India, Bihar. And there's a very interesting initiative that I heard about where they take basically uh, land that is not fit to be cultivated. And they are starting to convert some of that into fish farms. Uh, as a way of generating livelihood for sort of the marginal farmers who's who are being pushed into poverty, but at the same time creating you know uh, protein rich uh, uh, diets and incomes for these people. And I was wondering, have uh, have you seen that in other parts of the world with your uh, Fish Forever project? And and is this something that you consider a, a possible solution for the future? Sure. I mean, I don't know if I've seen that specifically. There's lots of projects out there to try to rehabilitate land, mangroves, 
you know, forests, farms. Uh, you know, we work on, on soil uh, regenerative agriculture also around the world and particularly in China. But, um, you know, I think, you know, for instance, there's, there's extensive fish farming and mangroves, which is, which is a really great way to create incomes and protect uh, the environment and, and habitat for for fish um, breeding uh, and aquaculture, I think is a very you know, it's obviously it's a huge opportunity for the world. Uh, it's it's, a, it's something that governments are making massive investments into, and it's a potential force uh, source of food security. But it has to be done well too. And there's a lot of really poor, uh, poorly done aquaculture out there. So to the extent that you know it's done with a, a real eye towards sustainability and and you know redu- reducing pollution and, and being sure that the, that the feed going into those systems is, is sustainable, then, uh, then I think it can be a very good thing. So, so Adele, as, the, kind of the, as we are wrapping up, um, so what kind of gives you the hope that we can uh, connect you know, the backstreet to Wall Street to achieve the SDG 14, which is life below water and making sure for the next generation there's actually fish and coral, you know, for them to, uh, <laughs> to see and be with? I mean, what, what gives you hope that it's all going in the right direction? Well, I feel like, uh, first of all, that the fact is that these SGs are all really interconnected, right? So you, you can't have, uh, you know, if you can't fix life below water without working on zero hunger and no poverty and gender equality and some of the other SDGs too. And because of that, you have the opportunity for lots and lots of capital to flow into the to fix these problems. You know, green bonds last year were 170 billion. Impact investing across that whole continuum, you know, continues to grow exponentially. I feel like, you know, millennials are, are going to really ensure that their money is spent, um, you know, is invested in companies that, are, that, are, that do the right things. So I feel like the momentum is in the right place. As I mentioned, the regulatory environment is, is moving in the right direction. Generally, you know, sometimes we have a little, a little uh, um, backsliding. But, uh, but so I, I feel like the momentum is there. There's certainly a lot of interest. And, uh, and more and more, um, you know, smart people are going to start thinking about how they can spend their time in this sector. Um, and not just try to make as much money as they can. Great. Well, Dale, you know, you obviously are in the in the right path and, and helping many, and uh, and I know there will be many more funds. Malloy is just the first um, that you're doing. Right. So good luck with all that, and thank you for doing the fantastic work that you're doing. Great. You too. Thanks for having me. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 